Uh, well, today I want to open by talking about epic showdowns where good triumphs over evil. And if I think about it, there are so many great movies where there are epic showdowns at the end of that movie. Um, and just I, I would love to get some audience participation. Shout it out. What's your favorite end of the movie showdown where good triumphs over evil? What is it? Do we have any? Just shout it out. You've got... <laughs> What's it? Wait, I heard you've got mail starring America's Sweetheart, Tom Hanks. And what was in the back? Good, the bad, and the ugly. Very good. Good. Crossroads. Crossroads. Okay, so good. See, at the crossroads. Yes, very good. What else? Avengers. Avengers, yes. Okay, good. Any others? Twilight. 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 So good. Dude, at first she didn't know he was a vampire. And then she's like, you have like a vampire thing. Yes. At the end of the, yeah. Any others? What's your favorite showdown? A couple more. Star Wars. Wars. Yes, Luke. I am your father. So good. Uh, Good. All right, cool. Well, there are so many great epic showdowns at the ends of movies. Uh, One of my favorites that I can think of, I can think of two that I'm going to share with you right now. One of them is the movie Eight Mile featuring Eminem. And I love that ending. Yes. Because uh, at, the, at the end, it's like, he's like, oh, I don't know if I can rap. And then, like, and then it's like this big crowd of people, and they're, like, doing this epic rap battle. And uh, at the very end, he does something unthinkable. He makes fun of himself first so that his opponent doesn't have anything to go off of. So just a heads up, if you're ever in a Detroit area and you're in a rap battle situation, make fun of yourself first, and it will result in you winning the rap battle against people named Papa Doc. Um, I think of all time, and I got this from Patrick, the greatest, one of the greatest showdowns at the end of movies is Home Alone. And I, I love this because you've got the kid and he's like, it's my house. I have to defend it. And he rolls out the map and he eats his, he eats his mac and cheese and his milk and he sets up all these traps and he takes care. Biggest showdown win. Now, well, how does this relate to God? <laughs> Let me just share. Uh, we are starting a new series called Experiencing God. And at Pack City, we believe That God just doesn't offer us some distant belief system. That he doesn't just offer us a way to escape the pain of this world. God offers us real relationship where we can experience him. Where we can feel and know his presence. And we can feel and know that he is working with us. And today we're going to take a look at one of the Bible's most famous showdowns. It's found in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings. And what we realize is that when we experience God, it increases our faith. It increases the faith of people around us. It helps us to know the real God and how we need to interact in our life and our work. And so we will be looking at a huge showdown in the Bible that results in people experiencing the power of God. So I've called today's talk how to experience the power of God. I'm going to pray and invite God's presence. Will you join me in prayer? God, we invite you to be here today. We want to experience you, and we want to experience your power. And so, God, I ask that you would put power on this message, that you would be with us today, that you would show us how we can encounter and experience you God, we just don't want to come to these things on Sundays or have some sort of weird relationship with you where you kind of exist 
out there, but that you, we want to know that you're real and that you're working in us and through us. Draw close to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're going to be looking in the Bible in the Old Testament. If you don't know what the Old Testament is, it's the first half of the Bible. It's the, it chronicles all the things that happened before Jesus came to earth. And so we read in 1 Kings 18, we read a story about a person named Elijah. And in ancient Israel at this time, things were not good. Things were actually really bad. There was a drought. Now, here we're in a drought in L.A., but this, it really doesn't matter, matter to us because of the way uh, we get our food and all that. But a drought in ancient Israel meant certain death for lots of people, and the crops couldn't grow, and the livestock would die. So there was a terrible drought. And the king of the country, King Ahab, blamed Elijah, this guy named Elijah, and he blamed all the good prophets. So Ahab and his wife Jezebel were running around Israel and they were killing all the prophets, all the good people that would talk about what God was doing in the world. And so he got rid of all the good prophets. He brought in all the bad prophets. And Ahab has a terrible, he's a terrible king. He's doing terrible things all around the city. There, people are dying. There's a drought in the land. And then all of a sudden, Elijah, who's in hiding, hiding from King Ahab because King Ahab is trying to kill him. Elijah gets this word from the Lord. He says, go and confront King Ahab. And if you confront him, I will make it rain again. I will get rid of this drought. And so Elijah goes to Ahab, who's been trying to kill him. And he says, let's have a showdown. I'll invite some people. You invite some people. Meet me at the flagpole, essentially, and we're going to have a fight. And we're going to have a showdown. And, but instead of a flagpole, it was a place called Mount Carmel. And so he says, hey, go call your people, Ahab, and I'll call my people. We'll meet on top of a mountain, and we'll figure out whose God is for real. Your God or my God. All right? And that's where we drop into the story, and we read this. It says in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So we have this scene. We've got Elijah. Hey, everyone, it's time for a fight. It's time for a showdown. Let's figure out who's God. Yahweh, our Elohim, the God of the Bible, or this Baal, this foreign God, this false God. Why don't we just throw them together and we see who wins? Wow. Showdown set. And so who is Baal anyway? Who is Baal? Well, let me explain it to you. Baal was a Middle Eastern God in this time. They believed that he conquered death and he was supposed to be the God of fertility and war and lightning and all these things. And people believed that Baal died and came back to life, which gave him access to the underworld. And from the underworld, he could bring fertility to the land. He could cause it to rain. He could cause crops to grow and livestock to be. He could make it really great again. He could make Israel great again. And at times of at times of crisis, I'm just going to push through. At times of crisis, this is what Baal followers would do. They'd be like, well, we're not getting what we want from Baal. 
I've got a good idea. Let's sacrifice our children. They would kill their children as a sacrifice to Baal to sort of please him in hopes that fertility would come to the land. And they often did this with their firstborn. Also, Baal followers would often uh, perform ritual sex, like in a temple. So what this resulted in is women and children being abused sexually. It was the result in was public prostitution, forced sex, and even rape. So what you have that as this drought and this terrible economy began to grow, you saw more people being violated through prostitution and sex and more people being killed to try to appease Baal. And Elijah comes in and says, no, this isn't going to happen anymore. You are not to worship this false idol, but let's do this. Let's just have a contest to figure out who's the right God, who's the real God and who's not the real God. Now, in today's modern world in Los Angeles, we don't believe in Baals necessarily. We don't bow down to idols made of wood or stone or gold or silver or precious jewels. But there are idols nevertheless in our culture. There are things that we worship that we think will make us happy, that will give us what we want. So what does a modern idol look like? Well, a modern idol is any good thing that is turned into an ultimate thing. That should you lose that ultimate thing, life wouldn't be worth living anymore. Think about it this way. A modern idol can be money. Money is good. You can do a lot of good with money. You can pay your bills. You can live in a structure that's not outdoors. You can do good things with money. But what happens when you, money becomes the ultimate thing? When pursuing some sort of security through money, what happens if you lose that money? You're crushed because you no longer have the money. I think of another way. I think of sex. If I can just be sexually connected to this person or this situation or have this, then I'll be happy. Or I think about power. If I just had a little more influence in my relationships, if I had just the right position at work, then I would feel good about my life. Then I would be happy. If I could just be a little bit more beautiful, a little bit thinner, if the scale would just tell me five pounds less than what I am, then I would be happy. And even though we don't worship idols made of stone or wood, we worship these things. We take them into ultimate things in our lives. And ultimately, they come into collision with what God has for us. So in response to Baal and Baal worship, we see one of the first things that we can do to experience God. And one of the ways we can experience God is to develop a sense of conviction about what is right. And we stand up for what is right. Look at what it says. It says in verse 21, Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Elijah saying that this is not right. There is a God in the world who loves you. And even though you don't see it right now, and even though some of you are tempted to worship these other things that you think will make you happy, let me just tell you that Baal's falseness is not right. You're going in the wrong direction. And I'm willing to stand up for what's right, even though I don't know what's going to happen. And when you and I, in the same way, when we develop a sense of conviction when we are willing to stand up for what's right, God often shows up in those moments with us. 
Because he puts power on our convictions. Even though we don't know what's going to happen. And oftentimes I find that I have to stand up for what is right. Even though I don't know the outcome. But it doesn't start there. It starts with the no more. No more will I participate in unethical business practices at work. No more will I allow myself to be in an abusive relationship with this person. No more will I allow myself to be treated this way in this relationship. And even outside of ourselves, no more will I allow people in countries, developing countries, to drink unclean drinking water that results in diseases. No more will I stand here and allow women and children to be trafficked around Los Angeles for the pleasures of just a few men. No more. I will stand up for what I don't know what to do about it, but no more. And what we see in the Bible when we want to experience the power of God is that when we stand on our convictions, God shows up. He does something through us. He loves when we stand on our convictions. He loves when we stand up for what's right. I think of, um, uh, there's a story I want to share at the end of my freshman year of college. Now, some of you have heard me talk about my upbringing and I, it was a really great uh, childhood where I like learned a lot about God. And but in my freshman year of college, things got a little crazy, and and uh, you know, and there were some wild times. And like I just remember, at the end of my freshman year, I felt like man, there's something that's not right. I wasn't walking with God. I wasn't doing the right things. I won't go into details, but I'll tell you later if you want to. And um, and I just found my friend. My friend is Jose. Uh, he's my buddy, Jose. And, uh, we just found like, man, we got to do something. We got to go to like a religious meeting and see what we can figure out. And so like we found ourselves going to this thing that was run by the navigators called fellowship of Christian athletes. Now I'm not much of an athlete, but it was open to the public. <laughs> and like we're every, you know, we'd be smoking cigs on the way cause we were so cool. And, uh, we'd like put them out like, Oh, it's time to go into church or whatever it is. And we just felt ourselves being drawn back and back and forth and and like going and going and going until finally I just felt like I was hit with a decision I had to make. Will I continue to walk down this road of doing my own thing or will I align my life and make God Jesus the Lord of my life? And what I mean by that is I was running my life and over the course of my freshman year, I realized I wasn't that good at it. My life was being destroyed because I was king of my life. And I felt the tug and I felt the invitation, the warm and loving invitation from God to say, why don't I run your life? And that's, and I was faced with that decision. I had to stand up for what was right, what I knew to be true. And it was very difficult. I was deeply involved in a fraternity and a bunch of friends that I would have to change and make adjustments to. But I knew I had to stand up for what was right and what was going on in terms of a sense of conviction inside of me. And I tell you what, I haven't looked back since. And it was the best decision I ever made. And some of you are facing decisions where you need to stand up for what's right. I mentioned a few examples, something at work or something that's unclear in a relationship. But God offers you himself and he loves when we draw on our convictions because he wants to draw close to us. Point made? All right, next point. So we stand up for, uh, we stand up for what's right. And uh, so what, let's read on. In 1 Kings 18, in verse 22, we read this. So 
he gathers everyone and we see Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Okay, so it's 450 to one. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. What in the world is going on here? Well, in the old times, they used to make these sacrifices to God. And they used to make sacrifices to other gods. And what you have is a showdown between good versus evil. You have, on the one hand, 450 prophets of Baal. And then you have the one prophet of Elijah. And what we see here in Elijah is something we can learn about how to experience God. And it's this. We expect God to do something. Elijah, he's like, hey, let's just do it. You get to pick your bowl. You cut him up. You put him on the sacrifice, but don't light the fire. We'll ask God to light the fire and figure it out. You know what is required for that? Major expectation. Major faith, major belief that God is going to come through. And if it, God does not come through for Elijah, he's probably going to die, right? And so what we see here in expectation, it's basically the same as exerting faith. In other parts of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this. It's a definition of faith. This is what we read. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. And what I get from that is that faith and expectation, it's not demanding. It's not like you better show up. Hey, I helped set up the chairs this morning for church. You better show up. Hey, I was really good this week. I didn't cut anyone off in traffic. You better give me lottery winnings. That's not what's going on here. It's not demanding, but it's expecting. It's expecting because God, the, the belief that God wants to do good things. God, you are good. God, you love me. You love the people you've made in this world. God, I expect, I welcome you to heal this person in my life who's sick. God, you don't have to do it, but I expect, I expect because you love me and you tell me you love me that you want to guide me in my relationships with other people. God, I expect you to do amazing things and all the people around me. God loves to meet us in our expectations. Now, he doesn't always fulfill all of our requests. He doesn't always fulfill all of our expectations, but he meets us in those expectations. So even if you are awaiting an answer to prayer. I encourage you, and I know 110% that God will meet you in those expectations. Even though they have, you may have unfulfilled requests, God loves when we expect things from him. And doesn't it just feel right when we, God, when you come into a room and you're expecting God to do something, and he does something, he loves when we do that. And for it now, so uh, some of you may not know this, but like I, there's when you pray for people over time, you become more confident as God answers those prayers for you. 
Now, I've met some people, they will pray when you are sick or have the flu, and you will always get better when they pray for you. But when I do it, it doesn't happen for me. I don't understand that. That's something about the mystery of God. But as I've grown to pray for different people, different things happen for me. And this may sound very strange to you, but one of the things that always gets answered when I pray for you is a job situation. <laughs> if, I, if you are struggling with your work, when I pray for you, like usually something happens. And I don't know what that exactly is, but now it's come to the point where it's so frequent that I expect God to do something. And I wonder if there's something there with our expectations, where we're exerting faith, where we know God doesn't have to do something, but he does do something. And I wonder what that would look like for you. So what we have here is this scene. There's 450 verses one. They're going to cut up these bowls, prepare them. They're going to put them on these sacrifice altars on top of a mountain. And there's a big crowd of people watching to see what happens. And so here's the, here's the next play. Elijah said to the prophets, choose one of the bowls, prepare it first. Since there are so many of you call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. So, okay. Just to be clear, they say the big thing. Everyone agrees. Here's how we're going to do the showdown. So the prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, he goes, why don't you guys go first? And they go, so, okay, cool. So they pick a bull. They cut up the bull. They put it on the sacrifice. And then here's what happens. It says in verse 26, then they came, then, excuse me, then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. So I don't know what, what time the shift started. So it's 8 a.m., you know, they go to about lunchtime and it says, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And so you get a scene. They're like, you know, doing the hibbity jibbity for like in the morning shift. Um, that might not be the right word for that. They're just dancing. Okay. Okay. And at noon, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He says, shout louder. He said, surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is asleep and must be awakened. And then like, they're, they're like, take his advice. It's because it says so in the next verse, which kind of means they're like, oh yeah, good point. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords. They're like, oh, we need to get him here. Let me just stab you. And he's like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Now God's going to, and, um, and they sashed themselves with sword and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, and nobody paid attention. Look, think about this. You've got all these 450 people. You're just standing around, cutting each other up, cutting each other's fingers off and screaming at the sky in front of a big crowd, getting more. The, the anxiety is getting ramped up. Baal, where are you? Do something. Burn up the sacrifice because we are putting ourselves out here. We're risking everything for you, Baal. Look at us. We're cutting ourselves. Think about the effort and dedication it took by these 450 prophets. Think about all the dedication that had to be put into all the religiosity that had to go in to following these prophets. Think about everything they had to do to like try to get their God to do something. And I think about that for us today. Is it really any different from the idols in our own lives? Is it really any different from the modern idols of our age? 
Maybe if I just work a little harder at my job, maybe if I make more sacrifices here or there, maybe if I just give a little more, then I will get what I want from my work and then I will be happy. Maybe if I just get this little nip tuck or I do this ex- this procedure or if I have something done with my face, maybe I will defy all of human history and I won't age anymore. Maybe God, if I just serve a little harder, maybe if I give just a few more dollars in the plate, God, maybe if I just am really nice to the pastor, God, maybe, maybe you'll just give me what I want. Maybe if I just be good, just a little harder, maybe I'll get what I want from you. And what we see is it never works. The job never fulfills. No matter what you do with your body, you cannot overcome the history of all human beings, which is your body will decay and your body will sag. We are all fighting. We are all fighting the future in that area. And you know what? Not a lot of people mistake and misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. They think if I could just get my life a little bit more together, if I could just impress these people, at this, maybe God would give me what you want. There is no formula to getting what you want from these types of actions because they're idols and no one will answer you. No amount of idol sacrifice will work. It will always disappoint It will always fail you because life was not designed for these idols to work. And what we talked about earlier is like if you have an idol, if you make a good thing, an ultimate thing, thing, what happens if you lose that thing? What happens if you lose your job? You're crushed. What happens if the inevitable happens and you get old? You will be crushed. What happens if you don't get what you think you need from other Christians and people? You will be crushed. Now, I think about this in my own life. I used to work at this church. It was really great. It was called Vineyard Columbus. And what I didn't realize when I left that church position is how much of my identity was connected to having that position of power. Because I was fun and people liked me and I was busy and I would do the little thing. I'm like, hey, I'll see you around. And like, and like people wanted to be around me and I was popular. I was a popular staff member. It was a staff of like 350 people and a church of like 8,000. So I was like, you know, a popular staff member. And like what happened after I left that position is immediately people stopped following up with me. People stopped calling me back. And what, I re- and what happened was like I realized that I... I was like, my power and influence and my relationships were connected to my position. They weren't connected to me. And the result of that was my identity was partially crushed because this is who I was. I had put too much of my identity in my position of power at work. And when that position went away, I was crushed. No one was there to answer And it was a sad story. Now, I realized what was going on. I knew what was happening. And I was like, I've got to change. I've got to do a couple things. I've got to have a relationship with God that does not depend on my position. And I need to have relationships in my life that don't depend on what I do, but who I am. And we just like to be friends. And I had to make the course correction, but it took a while. Because I saw myself in a certain light, but it was false. It was an idol. And you, too, have idols. If you're willing to look at them, if you're willing to consider them. And the thing I tell you is, if you're not willing to look at them, you will find out soon enough because they will disappoint you. And if you do know what they are, I encourage you, figure out how you're not going to draw your identity and who you are and your security in life 
from those things. Because sooner or later, they will disappoint. The prophets of Baal spent a full shift cutting themselves open, trying to get what they wanted. And they didn't get it. Learn from their mistake. Um, So we read on. 1 Kings 18, verse 30, it says this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. He lets them do their thing. It's getting dark out. He says, come here to me. Then they came to him and he repaired the altar for the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold onto two says of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and pour it on the wood. Do it again, he said. And then he did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a backyard barbecue, but if you soak your wood and your coals in water three times over, they're not going to light. What Elijah is doing here is he's not leaving anything to chance. He doesn't want any mistake that he expects God to do something. All you people, this is not to do with science. This doesn't have anything to do with like how this is going, how it usually works. Fill the trench with water. Fill the wood with water. Cover the sacrifice of the bull with water. Fill everything up. It's completely wet. And, and you know what we see here? Is that Elijah was willing to take a risk. And what we see here is that we need to take a risk. We take a risk. If you want to experience God, we have to be willing to take a risk. This is very risky for Elijah. He's not, only, uh, he's not only expecting God to do something, he's getting really risky. Hey, I'm going to get up in front of all these people who want to kill me, and I'm going to cover my sacrifice and give myself every disadvantage possible because I want God to shine. Man, that's a tough sell. Faith was required for this. Faith was required to take this risk. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we're a part of the Association of Vineyard Churches, and one of the people that helped launch the vineyard movement about 40 years ago. His name is John Wimber. And John Wimber ha- uh, has this saying, uh, had this saying, he passed away, and he spelled, uh, uh, basically, the way you spell faith is R-I-S-K. Faith is actually risk. How do you spell faith? R-I-S-K. And friend, do you want to experience God? Do you want to feel him in your life? It requires faith. And faith requires risk. So let me ask you a question. What are the areas in your life that God is requiring you or asking you or suggesting that you take risks? And here's the issue with risk. Oftentimes, we live life so that we let ourselves win. I have a daughter. And oftentimes, we let her win at the games that we're playing. So if we're playing Candyland, oh, wow, Marin. You won again. Uh, How did you do that? You're so amazing. She's going to grow up thinking like we were terrible board game players or something like that. And uh, 
and we'll, and we set the bar very low for her to, for her to gain self-confidence. Well, here's the issue with that. Sometimes we set that bar low for ourselves. We set only attainable things and we don't really risk much because we don't want to fail much because we're scared. So we end up not doing risky things that are actually risky. And we end up telling everyone that we're doing risky things. Risk is not doing the thing that you know will work out and then pretending like you did something risky. True risk actually involves the possibility of loss, the possibility of injury, and it definitely requires vulnerability. So let me ask you the question again, where are the places, where are the opportunities in your life that are requiring real risk? Where is God requiring you to step out and do something that you are a little bit scared? Where are you stepping out or feeling led to step out? Where are the places where you hesitate to let your mind go because it's just too much to think about? Those, those are the places where you may need to consider taking a risk. And let me just give you, if I haven't squeeze this in hard enough, I want to say oftentimes God gets our attention and wants us to take risk in two areas, our relationships and our finances. Now, if you start talking about finances, people get a little sweaty. You're like, who are you to tell me about your finances? Well, let me tell you who I am. I'm a guy who's trying to be faithful to what God says. And God gets our attention through our finances. And we, so we start talking about people getting, giving away money and being generous. It's very hard for people. But oftentimes, risk in our finances is what God requires. He, uh, sometimes he requires us to actually spend less, to live according to our budget. Sometimes he requires us to give more, to, uh, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. He uses our finances. And if you want to know really what you worship, really what your idol is, I encourage you, go look at your bank statement. You'll find out what you worship. Your bank statement will tell you, is it this? Is it clothes? Is it food? Is it people? What is it? What is it that you worship? Your bank statement will tell you. And another area is relationships. Relationships. God uses relationships to get our attention. God uses relationships where we have to take risks, especially romantic relationships. And so I encourage you, risk. There must be risk if we want to experience God. So what are the areas God is asking you to take a risk? So what happens? Elijah is super risky right here. He covers his sacrifice three times with water. There's no way he's going to get out a little Bic lighter and light this thing. Something's got to happen. So we read in verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice... It says, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell up and burned the sacrifice. The wood and the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. Boom! When all the people saw this, I added that. That wasn't in the scripture. Boom. <laughs> Booyakasha. Uh, in verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We, how do you want to experience God? How should we experience God? How can we experience God? We ask God. To do what we cannot do. There is no hype 
from Elijah. He didn't have to sing and dance. He didn't do the dance dance revolution. He didn't cut himself once. He didn't even spend any time. He spent more time ordering people to dump water on the sacrifice than he did actually talking to God. And all there was no amount of good behavior that came from him and his his fans that were there. The only thing he did, the only thing that he did was ask. All he did, he simply asked. And you get the impression that he's not all that hyped up. He wasn't like, Lord, God. And he wouldn't have done what I did. He was just like, God, show them your God. And I leave that to you. What we call that is naturally supernatural. We want to be natural in every way that we can. And God, we just invite you to do your thing. And what we see is, the fire comes down. It proves to the audience that God is real. And so what happens? Everyone, the public opinion sways from being indifferent or believing that there's multiple gods, polytheistic to believing in the Lord God. Imagine if you were there. Imagine what that would have done for you. Hey, I'll go watch the show. I'll go see what happens. Man, these bloody fools didn't do anything. Okay, let's see what this guy got. It's getting dark. And he goes, God, can you help me? He's like, like, fire falls down from heaven. And so you would be like, okay, um, I think I need to get my life in order a little bit. There's like something going on here with the fire from heaven. And so that's what we see. Immediately, they say they fall prostrate. That means they fell on their knees and knees. They fell on their faces and they say, you are God. You are God. Oh my God, you are real. Why did we ever doubt you? And so it goes on and it says they got rid of all those false prophets. Those prophets didn't make it out of the valley. And it says they burned up all the Baal worshipers. And again, the country of Israel was restored to following the one true God. That wasn't just some theological belief system, but it was shown with power. There was power. And what I see here after that is that uh, we're not going to get into it. But after that, shortly after, within the hour, it began to rain. And everything was restored back to normal. And the, they, their crops grew, and the, the country flourished, and they had livestock that was able to drink water, and there was no problems in this area uh, for, a, for a few years until Israel did something else that wasn't so good. But everything was good for the time being, not because of anything Elijah did, not because of following these false prophets, but simply because God wanted to do what God wanted to do. And here, let me tell you, here's what you don't need to experience the power of God. Here's what you don't need. You don't need to go to the crystal shop today and buy some crystals. You don't need to be a little bit better, a little bit more good. You don't need to, well, this week I'm not going to cut anyone off in traffic. Or I'm not going to swear as much. That's not going to do it. That's not what you need to experience God. You don't need to... First, get your life in order in order to ask him for something. What you need, what you need to experience God for real, all you have to do is ask. All you do is ask. You say, God, I want to experience you in my life. God, I, I want to feel you in this area of my life. God, I've done everything I can in this relationship and it's not working. I need your fire from heaven, not to burn the person up, but to do something that I cannot do. God, if you don't show up in this relationship, it's done. God, if you don't show up in this marriage, 
we're through. God, if you do not show up with me and the way I relate to my supervisor at work, this is not going to work. It's over. God, we are here as Pacific City Church. We are a new church and we've done what we can. But God, unless you show up, it's not worth it. I mean, we don't want to do it without you. Let your fire come. All we do is ask. God, God meets us in our expectation. God meets us in our need. Where is it that you need to simply ask? Now, asking requires a little bit of humility because it means you can't figure it out. But if you do it, I believe that he will meet you in that. And here's how you do it. How do you ask? Well, there's prayer. Now, prayer is a two-way street. We often talk about that. But prayer isn't like, Lord, the God, I speak to thee. Like, get all rid of that. And like, often, I'm a pastor and I went to school for like a bunch of years for this. And sometimes I pray in groups with people, not in this group, but other people. And all of a sudden, like their voice changes and like their like language changes. I'm like, who are these people? God does not require that. God requires us to be authentic before him. Say, God, I need you in this area, in this thing. God, I need your help. We pray. Uh, the, the other thing we can do is we can pray with somebody else. In a few minutes, I'm going to invite some of you to come forward and you should pray with somebody else. God wants to you, for you to experience him in that way. Sometimes we just don't do it alone. It's not just me and Jesus. God gave us the church to work and to be together in a way that helps us to hear and know God's voice, to experience him and also to experience his power in particular situations. And another thing that we do to ask God, we actually spend time waiting. And like I said before, prayer is a two-way street. And a lot of times we just think we've got to shoot everything up to God, like, Lord, please help me to get everything I want in this area and that area and give me the, the boy of my dreams and help me win. I don't need to win the mega millions, but just some lottery amount to help pay for the thing. And so um, we don't have to do that. We, we can just also wait and say, God, what do you say? And oftentimes in the quiet and still voice, God speaks to us when we position ourselves to hear from him. And so, while Elijah did what God asked him to do through this sacrifice, and the fire came down from heaven, what we know is that Elijah and this whole situation with the prophets of Baal and the sacrifice on the altar and God's fire, this was a symbolic sacrifice of what was going to happen in the future. And just a few centuries down the line, the person of Jesus Christ came to earth and he became a human sacrifice, fighting and destroying death and destruction and becoming victorious over all the problems we face in this world and showing that there was a fire that was coming down from heaven that was designed to fix the brokenness of this world. And when we rely not on just this idea of a sacrifice in the Old Testament, but when we welcome Jesus, we are aligning ourselves with the person that wants to bring this stuff into our lives. That wants to bring a little bit of chaos to stir up the areas where we've dedicated ourselves to idols, but he wants to also give us what we need, a sense of confidence and assurance, and also not just for the future when we like die and things are better when we're with God forever in heaven, but also for the here and the now. That like God actually wants to influence situations that you're in and things that you're going through today. And when we do these things, when we expect God to do something, when we take risks and then we sit back and we ask, we are doing things to be perfectly positioned to experience the power of God in our lives. Now, this series 
We're going to be talking about experiencing God. And we're going to be inviting God to do things in our midst. And you have things that you need God to do that you can't do. And that's what we're going to focus on. And we're going to invite you to participate. And our hope is by the end of the series that each of us would have a deeper understanding of how to experience him. And we would start to actually see some of these things happen in our church community. I want to see some of your friends healed when you pray for them. And I want to see some of you uh, experience financial health as a result of God doing something. And I want to see some of you clear up the thing that you need to clear up with the person, even though it seems like it's impossible to do it. But you'll be able to do that because the power of God is working miraculously behind the scenes in naturally supernatural ways. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't we all stand?